Well, please remain standing with me and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Our text this morning will be verse 9 through 17, though we will not cover all of those verses this morning. So let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us, and then we'll read from the text and open it up. Let's pray. Now, blessed Almighty God, we do bow before you in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, who came to this earth and humbled himself who made himself a lowly servant and offered up himself on behalf of sinners that he might redeem us from darkness, from the devil, and from the grip of sin, that our Lord and Savior might set us apart from the world, make us a holy people, a church, a holy church, a spiritual house, a bride. And Father, that you might use these words this morning to educate us, convict us, and help us to grow in grace, that we might examine ourselves, that we might see where we stand and how, how we believe we come before you and are accepted in your sight. Oh, Father, come and teach us. Lord, these words this morning and help us to understand that you desire humility and a humble heart. You desire contrition, Lord, in our inner being. And I pray, O oh God, that we would leave here from this worship, having been touched by you and having been convicted, Lord, that we might truly take to heart these words and that there would be none here that would leave not justified, Lord, not accepted in your beloved, but that all would hear, affirm, or believe, Lord, and be right with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. And beloved, hear the word of God, Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And two men went in, up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying of this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. And but Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. 
For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, we are close to bringing our study of the parables to an end. Luke chapter 18 will be the last chapter that I will preach as far as explaining the kingdom of God as it relates to the parables of our Lord and Savior. The parables help us to understand the kingdom in a variety of ways. Sometimes they teach us about discipleship, what discipleship looks like in the kingdom of God. Sometimes they teach us how we are to perform in the kingdom of God. That is, those, these parables highlight duties of the kingdom. The parable before us this morning help us to understand what's necessary to enter into that kingdom, showing us that there is only one proper way to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the entrance into the kingdom of God is equated to this. How is a man or woman made acceptable in God's sight? How is a person made acceptable in God's sight? Now, we could, I guess, phrase it another way. We could, instead of talking about its acceptance, that is, what is sort of required of the person coming to God who desires heaven, that's another way of putting it. We like to talk about heaven. Many people like to talk about heaven. They like to talk about going to heaven. They like to talk about being on the road to heaven. So that's very important. We could also phrase the question this way. We could talk about how is a man justified before God? And what does that justified man look like from the outside? This parable has been very, very popular among gospel preachers, that is, those who come and preach in an evangelistic sense. And you can see why. The parable itself addresses two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. And that's, that's the purpose, that's the intention that Jesus is making, that there are two kinds of people within the scope of religion, right? Both of these were religious people per se. They were both going up to the temple to worship. That's important to take note of. As I think it was the ex-German monk back in his day, Martin Luther, that talked about this parable does not address those heathens Atheists are God-haters. That's not the point of the parable. Jesus is not drawing attention to that group or to that category. He's highlighting among those that are interested in going to heaven, those interested in being accepted before God, those interested in God being delighted with them, that par- this parable is for them, for you, for me, 
And for anyone else that would be interested in going to heaven or being made right with God. And beloved, as it's been uh, my uh, normal uh, tradition in handling the parable, we're going to look at its context. We're going to look at the parable itself. And then this morning, we're going to look at the Pharisee. I don't think that I will get through the parable or that whole portion of the text I read this morning. This morning, I'm not going to try to force it. I'm not going to try to in any way uh, uh, breeze through it. I want to make sure that there's so much here that we can benefit from and take encouragement by that I want to make sure we do or I do my due diligence and you are blessed from the word itself. Well, let's look at the context. The context in it, I don't think, certainly not accident. Luke is very precise in his history. Luke is very precise in his recording of history. And it's important to recognize that we are just coming off of a parable that taught us to be what? Persistent in prayer. Persistent in prayer. To be diligent in prayer and to wait patiently for God's hand to move and to act. That the kingdom of God, which is the people of God, the church of God, that the kingdom of God is to be engaged in persistent prayer, patiently waiting upon the hand of God to move in your life and even in the life of a nation or a church altogether, but that we would be diligent in prayer. It's, it's connected that now Jesus, using prayer, helps us to understand what is acceptable before God. What kind of prayer is acceptable for God? And what kind of person prays these certain prayers? And Jesus, so, and Jesus is going to help us understand what's appropriate at certain times. And we'll look at that in just a minute. So that's the broader context. Now we've got to look at the immediate context, which is found right in verse 9. We are told by Luke that there were some people around Jesus, it's not identified, we don't know who they are, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They believed that they had a righteousness that was based upon their works, okay? And Jesus knows this. Probably is something that's obvious as the parable highlights, it was no secret when you hear the Pharisee pray where his trust lay, right? It wasn't in God. It was in himself. But not only, that was just part of the problem. That wasn't the whole problem, and that wasn't all that Jesus would address in the parable. The second part of the context is, and they viewed others with contempt, with contempt, now, this is a very strong word. In fact, it's used here in the Gospel of Luke, and it's used 
in the in the forwarding chapters of Jesus of, of Herod and his uh, soldiers treating Jesus, mocking him, spitting upon him, and beating him, and putting thorns upon his head, it says that they treated him with contempt. It's a strong word. So Jesus is addressing two things. He's addressing the idea, now, remember this is talking about how man is made right before God. So he's addressing this idea of, a, of self-righteousness being a legitimate means of securing everlasting life or a legitimate means of securing God's acceptance. And then secondly, He's addressing the evil contempt, the malice, the malice that they have in their heart toward their neighbor. Now, let's look at the parable itself. The parable of itself is a comparison. Jesus is using the Pharisee and the tax collector or the publican, however you might have it in your Bible, he's comparing, he's using these two men to compare what it is to be self-righteous and, and, and to hold one's neighbor in contempt and for one to be humble and resting solely upon the grace of God. Now, it's easy, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to understand, but as we get into the parable, it becomes very convicting and hard because we are called upon to look at the Word of God like a mirror, right? That is, it, I, I think we need to agree with the best of scholarship out there that these two people, these two men are representative of the human race, so to speak, are representative of that religious sect, a group of people. That is, they represent the two places, the two positions that we are, that we might identify with this morning. Either we're trusting in ourselves or, as the parable says, we're trusting in the mercies of God. So they act as representatives. And we're to look into this text of Scripture this morning and see which one we identify with. And if we identify with the Pharisee, we're going to need to take the appropriate steps to remedy that. If we identify with the tax collector, and then we're going to thank God for his mercies even more. So, as we look at the text, we need to understand that it's there set before us like it was to the people around Jesus as a mirror. Jesus, or at least Luke doesn't record, they're not called out. The people around Jesus are not called out by name. Jesus isn't calling them out by name. He is telling this parable, he is telling them this spiritual story so that they might listen to it and then examine themselves and go, oh no, that's me. That's me. 
I just heard Jesus say that the one that I identify with went home unjustified, not accepted before God, offensive to God. And I need to remedy that. That's the purpose. That's the point. Our Lord Jesus is, again, this this parable And in its context, our Lord Jesus is certainly highlighting not just the needs of the people around him, but is he not ministering to them? Is he not giving them this opportunity to take the word of God by the spirit of God to have their hearts pierced with the truth so that they might, what, come to this great conviction that they are in need of God's mercy and grace. So, well, let's look at the parable. First of all, in verse 10, notice that there's two men and nothing is out of the ordinary here. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. There's nothing in verse 10 that staggers us. They Two men outwardly walking up to the temple because the temple sat upon a hill. It was elevated in the city. And they're going up to pray. They're going up at the appointed time. They're going up to worship. And if you were to see these two men, you would think nothing of it. It would be common, it would be ordinary. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now remember, I'm not going to get into the tax collector per se at this point, but just understand that tax collectors were not viewed as being um, friendly. They weren't viewed, that is, you wouldn't make a tax collector your friend. They had sketchy reputations. They were known as being frauds in many cases, extortionists. And they oftentimes turn on their own countrymen and their neighbors, turned them over to the soldiers of Rome so that they might be punished. Now, the Israelites could get out of that by slipping them some money. And it was an occupation where typically the tax collector was on the richer side of life, the more wealthier side of life, but that money come through much fraud. And so they weren't highly looked upon. The Pharisee is the opposite. They were seen as scribes. They were seen as teachers of the law. They were seen as religious. They were seen as Um, I think there was a a Hebrewism that talked about if there were only two people ever saved in this world, one of them would definitely be a Pharisee. They were looked at as being close to God because they were so uh, detailed in their religion. They were so uh, uh, strict and, and committed to this, this religion of God. And so they were, Uh, They were exalted for their religiosity. So these are the two people that are going up to worship. 
Now, Jesus knows that this is going to draw attention, and he knows that people immediately are going to be contrasting the two, and that's the purpose. In verse 11, notice that the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Now, let's stop there because there are there's certainly a... Um, a variant here. There's a Greek variant here. We've got a question here. And that is the text is trying, at least the New American Standard, the 95 edition that I'm reading from, tries to do something with it. And it says that the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. That is, so he wasn't praying. My text basically gives this idea that the Pharisee stands up and he prays silently. That may not be the case here because again of the variant. It is proper that the Pharisee stood, we know that, that's definitely clear enough from the text, but really the question lies is, is he praying to himself or is he praying about himself? That's the question. Is he praying in, within himself or is he praying about himself? Now I would lean toward that his prayer is about himself. Because remember, we're making a contrast. We're contrasting the prayer of the Pharisee with the prayer of the tax collector. And so I think it's appropriate that the Pharisee stood, nothing wrong with standing. Prayer has many postures. You can pray standing, you can stand up to pray, you can pray kneeling, you can pray sitting. In fact, Jesus prayed laying upon his face in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there's no technique or there's no posture that prayer requires. It just means that he stood up, but more than likely, more than likely, and I think it's, I think we have warrant to go there in the text that the Pharisee, uh, Pharisee, that the Pharisee stands up to bring attention to himself. And I think that's Jesus' point. He stands up to pray, drawing attention to himself, and then his prayer is about himself. It's not directed toward God. Remember, there, there must be, God must be the object of true prayer. We don't pray to anything else. We don't pray to the dead. We don't pray to our dead mothers, our dead fathers, cousins, or brothers, or friends, no matter how religious they may be. We pray to God and only to God. That's the, that's the object of biblical, true spiritual prayer. And that's why we abhor praying to the saints. It's an abomination to pray to dead men or women. It's, a pro, it's, it's, a, it's an abomination to pray for our dead ancestors, or to our ancestors, to our dead ancestors. We pray to God. So I think it's important to highlight what Jesus said even in Matthew 6. Remember, Jesus said that the Pharisees loved to draw attention to themselves in the synagogue. 
Why? By standing up and making long, pretentious prayers. They loved, they loved highlighting their presence. They loved highlighting their eloquent spiritual language. They were masters at prayer, at least to the ear. But as this parable teaches us, if they're not trusting in the Lord, not to the heart, what might be pleasing to the ear may be an abomination to God. Okay? God is not moved by outward appearances. That's not, that's, uh, now, we don't come to church without clothes on, right? I mean, that's an outward appearance. We don't do that. Yeah, that's, a, that's an exaggeration. And believe it or not, there were some in the, re, in the reform movement back in, those, back in the day of the Reformation um, that believed that kind of thing these religious zealots and they would just strip off naked and they would run down the street. So we have to be careful. God is not impressed though by outward religiosity. So we see there in verse 11 that the Pharisee stands to draw attention to himself and he begins praying and the prayer even draws attention more attention to himself that he is ultimately the object of his own prayer and we see that in verse um, 11 and 12 we're going to look at that in a moment it's contrasted with the tax collector. I'm just going to just address this point, and then we're going to look at the Pharisee properly. And the tax collector is sort of the opposite here. The tax collector is off at a distance. You can see the compare the two. The Pharisee more than likely is up front, close to where the priest is ministering the sacrifices. And the the, the the tax collector is off away, a distance away. One believing that he is very worthy to be up front for everyone's viewing and the other one not wanting to be seen who doesn't see himself as worthy to even look up to heaven himself. And that's what the text tells us. Standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So we can see here in these two contrasts, the Pharisee basically highlights how thankful he is not to be like the tax collector. The tax collector Jesus highlights in the parable, he is asking the Lord for mercy. So those are the two contrasts. Well, let's look at the Pharisee and hopefully make some pertinent application before our eyes and ears so we can see and hear these things and address anything that might come up within our own hearts. First of all, we need to recognize that the Pharisee, his prayer, 
himself. Let's look at this, this the, the, the prayer. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now he starts the prayer off appropriately. I thank you. But it doesn't take long for him to derail that prayer with self-righteousness. We ought to pray, and as we are taught in our catechisms and confession and taught in Scripture, of course, that we ought to pray with thanksgiving. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Do everything with prayer and thanksgiving. So when we pray to God, we ought to address God with a thankful heart with a thankful disposition. That's biblical, that is godly. We ought, why? Because thankfulness should lead us to praise. When we are thankful, then we are subject to praise the God we are thankful to and for. And yet that does not happen here with the Pharisee. The Pharisee, after thanking God, then notice what he thanked God for, that I'm not like other people, or look at the last part of the verse, or even like this tax collector. Now, this is the picture. I think this is the appropriate picture that if we take the text and we try to construct it, this is what we would come up with. As the Pharisee sees his opportunity to stand up and to pray before all that are there, the tax collector is also praying at the same time. And that the Pharisee more than likely sees the tax collector praying. That's sort of the picture here. That is, not only is he praying because, you know, Back in these days, if you um, pick up on some of the scriptures, they prayed oftentimes with their eyes open. Jesus looked up into heaven and he would pray. He didn't close his eyes. We close our eyes typically as a sign of humility, as a sign of, of acceptance, as a sign of being uh, honoring and receiving from the hand of the Lord, not lifting our eyes, so to speak. But there's no biblical way. You could pray with your eyes open. And the Pharisee, he sees this tax collector over there mumbling, almost incoherently, in his, between his sobs, beating his chest, confessing his sins, and the Pharisee goes, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm not like him. Now, Jesus is highlighting contempt. He's highlighting that second part of the reason he's even teaching this parable, that not only was this Pharisee self-righteous, as we're going to look at, but he held his own countrymen who was there to worship God in contempt. He despised him. We look at the prayer and he says, look at what he says in his prayer. He says, that I'm not like other people. Who are these people that he's glad he's not like? Well, the swindlers, um, defrauders, right? Those who would swindle people, business deals. Those who are always 
working on an angle to uh, cheat someone out of their livelihood. That's a swindler. Unjust, someone who's not righteous, sort of unholy. Someone's not worried about doing the right thing or um, uh, 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 doing that which is seen as just before God. Adulterer. He's like, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like, you know, I'm not one who perverts your moral standard with adultery. And even like this tax collector. And we see here, so what is this Pharisee saying about himself? Well, he's just highlighting all of these things that he is. Now, notice what he's praying. He's praying, he's sort of two aspects of his prayer. He's praying, Lord, let me tell you who I am. <laughs> it's kind of presumptuous, isn't it? You don't think the Lord knows who you are when you pray? Isn't that part of praying that when we go before God that he knows our hearts? That he sees us for who we are? That we can't hide from him? But yet, nevertheless, in his ignorance, the Pharisee begins to just tell God about himself. Again, arrogant, presumptuous, cavalier, just a self-righteous hypocrite. And then notice verse 12. This is who I am and this is what I do. This is who I am, and this is what I do. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, I have to mention this because I thought it was clever and, and proper. Martin Luther brings out in his sermon on this text, he says, you know, we, we're all for our neighbors not being adulterers. We're all for our neighbors not being swindlers. We're all for our neighbors not being thieves, right? Well, I mean, look, that's, that's, that's a good thing. But we're not talking about the common morality that we want out of our neighbor. We're talking about how someone is made right before a holy God. That's the difference. Our neighbors may be moral. And they may be outwardly just in all these different ways. And I hope they are. We need them to be in order for there to be a civil society, right? That's the whole purpose of outward law and governance. That there would be this outwardness. And again, because government doesn't address the heart. Only God addresses the heart. The point is, though, but my neighbor should not trust in their righteousness to get them into heaven. It's a different, just a different question altogether. But notice, he says, I fast twice a week and I pay tithe on all that I get. Now, here's what's interesting about this, and this is something that we certainly need to take note of. God never asked him to fast twice a week. There's nowhere, there's no commandment in the Old Testament where God required for his servants to fast twice a week. There is an Old Testament law that addressed f uh, fasting on the Day of Atonement. 
And that one day of that major sacrifice in Israel, there was a national fast called upon. But there is nowhere in the Old Testament where God required of his servants a fasting twice a week. So he's not highlighting, he's not boasting in the commandments of God, he's boasting in his supererogation of the commandments. I'm even more spiritual than the word of God. I'm even more obedient than God requires. How do you, okay, I think you get it. And this tithing, I pay tithes on all that I get. And Jesus highlights this too. He says, oh, you're so strict. You take your spices and you go, oh, I want to give this 10% over here. I want to make sure that all these spices. God never required that. He required a tithing upon your increase. He never required this. And you can see how Jesus, even in Matthew 21, and as he says, what do you do? He says, you hypocrites, he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, you lay burdens, burdens upon the people with your extra laws and you lift not one finger to help them. Well, that's not true religion and that's never been the case biblically. In fact, take your Bibles and let me go ahead and highlight a verse that's important to our text. Turn to Micah 6, 8. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Now, I mean, again, Micah is a book of the destruction of Israel and Judah, that is, it, it highlights their failures, all right? Their moral failures, their religious failures. It highlights, it sort of, it addresses the justification of God to come and judge them. So you look right there in chapter 6, that first five verses is the Lord's indictment to his people. But look at verse 6 through 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? You see, that's what the Lord required of Israel. And that's what he requires of his people when Jesus was teaching this and of us to now. But if you look right there in but what's the Pharisee saying? What's the Pharisee bragging about? The Pharisee is bragging about he does way more than God ever commanded and he should be commended for it. That somehow this makes him even 
better than his own countrymen. He's better than the tax collector because of what he doesn't do and because of what he does. You see, brothers and sisters, this Pharisee, his self-righteousness, his dependence is not in God. His dependence is in the things that he does not do. I don't break God's law. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a swindler. I'm not like the tax collector. Now we could, we could, you know, transpose it from a tax collector to, you know, I'm not like a liberal. I'm not like a Democrat. I'm not like a politician. I'm not like these. But again, we got, but again, we would, that's, that's outside of the application. We got to work with the people in the church, right? When, when our brothers and our sisters might come in and we judge them on outward appearances. He said, well, we know Pastor Stanfield's holy. He's a preacher. Well, I can tell you a, a text of writing and literature that shook me deeply many decades ago. And that's when reading the reformed pastor by Richard Baxter. And he said, I can assure you that there will be many preachers close their eyes in this world and open them up in hell. You can preach the gospel and go to hell. You can preach the gospel without a right heart. You can listen to the gospel you can walk the aisle. You can give all of the outward visible signs of accepting the sermon and yet in your heart never ever truly accept it. All the while trusting in your own goodness. All the while trusting that somehow you're better than the person sitting next to you. And you convince yourself of this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. It could be an elder. It can be deacons. It could sing in the choir. It could be the person handing out the bulletins, shaking hands. I mean, it could be the person that gives the most money in the church. It doesn't matter. Outward appearance of religiosity is never the litmus test of entrance into heaven. It's a contrite heart. It's a heart that is broken first and foremost because it has offended a holy God. That's it. It's not that I'm not right with God. God's not right with me. God's not right with me. God is upset with me. It's not that I don't want to believe in God. It's not that I don't want to conform to his way. No, it's that God's at war with me. And I need to bring peace between me and God because Jesus said, fear the one who can cast you body and soul into everlasting destruction. Brothers and sisters, listen, every day we live, we're getting closer and closer to judgment day. 
we're closer to judgment day than we were last Sunday. Whether that means our own personal deaths, that can be that. We can, that's an application for sure. We're closer to our own personal death today than we've ever been before. But we're also closer to that eternal judgment than we ever were before. The world is on a linear time frame that one day Jesus will come back and he will, well, he's going to reconcile all things. And there's only going to be two types of people that stand before him. There are going to be those that have justified themselves. Now, I'm not dealing with those that are unbelievers. Oh, we didn't know you existed. I'm dealing with those that thought they were okay. They never dealt with their hearts. They never dealt with the pain. Whenever that sin creeped up in their heart, whenever they even had an inkling that they would somehow need to fall on their face before God, more than likely Satan comes along and he whispers in their ear, you're, look, you're pretty good. Look at this person. Pride. Self-righteousness. You're a pretty good old guy, old gal. You're pretty good. What are you worried about? There's a lot of people that would love to have you in their church as their neighbor. We can be right with men and wayward with God. And brothers and sisters, Only you know that. That's only you know that. You can be homeschooled. Homeschool does not insulate you from sin, temptation. You can be in the best of Reformed churches. That doesn't insulate you from temptation and sin. That is not going to, when you get to that point, it's not going to be whether or not what church were you a member of and that's not, that's not in any way disparaging not being in a good church. It's just say, am I going to trust in this membership to get me to heaven? No, I hope not. I must do business with God from my heart. And the Pharisee doesn't do that. The Pharisee is trusting in himself and he has contempt for the one who is justified before God. You know, God did an amazing work with me and when I began managing this one company, there was... um, the first time that I was really around a lot of millennials all at once. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to be, you know, you're kind of around one or two, but I, you know, I'm around dozens of them, you know, meetings, uh, having to hand out responsibility. And it was an eye opener for me. And, and, and they, and they looked the part, I mean, you know, um, I mean, they looked like the world, and so I had a lot of prejudgments 
coming into uh, my management of them because I had to interview them. I had to find out what role they may have. I had to find out if there is a role for them. Do they have the skill sets for it and that sort of thing and begin to weed out the people we don't want and hire the people we want and need as the company. That's what they hired me to do. Now, here's the thing. This was God's veiled blessing that I wasn't aware of until I got in the middle of it. I met some of the just dearest brothers in Christ. And now they look, listen, the world was all over them. And I had better conversations with them about the scriptures, about the Lord, about humility. And they were so humble. I mean, they would acknowledge that they were sinful. They were, I mean, these, they had a terrible past. Felons. And here we are. We are sitting at the table praying together, opening up the word of God. They're coming to me for spiritual counsel and advice. I'm coming. I'm, I mean, one of the, the, the young men, every time, I, every time I saw him, I'd say, good morning. How are you? Now, I made a, a point to speak to everybody. He'd say, I'm blessed and favored. That's how he responded to me every day. I am blessed and favored. And he had a rough life. Now, what's my point? What's, why? Why, is, why did that come out of nowhere in my own head? Because, listen, I made judgments. And those judgments, for the most part, with those particular people, turned out to be wrong. Wrong. And I'm willing to admit that. I was delighted to have the conversation. I mean, the book readings, I mean, they would recommend books to me and I'd recommend books to them and they'd go home and read these books. They were just ferocious readers. My point. And if they walked in, you'd slide over. If they sat down on your aisle, you're sliding over. But they were some of the meekest, humblest servants of the Lord because God saved them. They had been saved. And they knew what mercy was. They had experienced God's grace. They couldn't do anything to wash off their past. Did they need to? But they were the Lord's servants. And brothers and sisters, listen. There are three things about this Pharisee that we're going to close with that he did not understand, that he was ignorant of. Whether this was willful ignorance or just blind ignorance, you, you, you pick. The first thing that this Pharisee was ignorant of is his connection to Adam and his original guilt and fall. We have all fallen in Adam. And the Pharisee did not understand the covenant of works. 
He did not understand that original covenant of works. He did not understand that he had been polluted and tainted and was guilty in Adam. And he was under the curse of Almighty God and he could not work his way to heaven. He had no righteousness that would be acceptable to God. He couldn't obey the commandments perfectly as he thought he could. He was ignorant of that original covenant. Secondly, he was ignorant of God's law. Yes, he may not be an adulterer proper, but had he ever lusted over a woman? Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 5? If you've lusted over a woman, then I tell you, you have committed adultery. He didn't understand God's law. He didn't understand the spiritual nature of God's law. He didn't understand the inward working of God's law, how the law of God comes into our hearts and reveals and opens up to us who we really are. He didn't understand the different layers of sin, that it's not just the sin actual, but there are sins that lead up to it. And thirdly, and this one is the one we need to walk away with for sure. Well, he was ignorant about what made a man right before God. And you cannot walk away this morning not understanding that. Your good works will not make you acceptable before God. It's only God's grace. It's his compassion. It's his mercy poured out to you in his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. You only have, listen, you come to God and you come bearing sin. You come to God and you come with handfuls and headfuls and heart full of sin. And that's all you've got. And God has to wash you and make you clean. He was ignorant about what made him justified before God. Brothers and sisters, don't be ignorant about what justification is. You get that wrong and you'll perish. You trust in anything other than Jesus Christ and his grace and mercy and compassion and his work, and you will you will go to hell. Don't get it wrong. You may be the best person ever. Apart from Christ, it's an abomination to God. Be good in Christ. And because of Christ, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, such an important thought that we've been challenged with this morning and that is what makes one acceptable in your sight? And your word teaches it clearly what, what that is and what it's not. Father, you only have the power to bring this word to our hearts, to our minds. Let no one here trust in anything other than Christ for heaven. 
Let us not trust our calling. Let us not trust our occupation. Let us not trust our own goodness. Nothing, not our, not our relationships, not our family name, nothing but Christ. Christ alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. On the word of God alone. And Father, make each one here confident and with the assurance that we trust nothing but Christ. And Father, as we come now to the supper, as we feast upon the body and blood of Christ, highlight, enliven, and strengthen faith and hope and love, Lord, that we might serve you as we should, as we ought, as, a, as one you are worthy of, worthy of service. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.